peace and love, black families, the Prince of Pan-Africanism, live and direct, Jacksonville, Florida. When I'm in town, I'm rocking with the Thread, Thread, live. That's who Dr. Umar rolls with. Hey, you now rocking with the Thread, baby. Turn it up! Talking live, sock passe. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and beautiful people all across the world. Guess what time it is? It is time for the thread. Uh, we're a little short today. It's because uh, the Chocolate Vixen couldn't make it. But guess what? I got my other partner in crime. What do you do, people? My name is Turk. We got a very special guest in the building. Very, to the people. very special guest. Talk to the people. Uh, Dr. Umar Johnson, doctor of clinical psychology, school psychologist. Pan-Africanist, author of the book, Psychoacademic Holocaust, Ooh. Special Education and ADHD Wars Against Black Boys. Ooh. See, now, when we usually have guests, they have a hard time giving out their bio. Ooh. Definitely you're a professional. <laughs> we appreciate Ooh. that. No problem. Ooh. Dr. Umar, we appreciate you for coming to the thread today. And um, for our listeners, for those of y'all who are avid listeners, we like to start the show with a little something called the thread count. But this week, since we got a very, very special guest, not to knock on any of our past guests, but we're going to switch it up a little bit. So, Dr. Umar, I'm going to, we're going to ask you three questions, one by one, and you're going to get 30 seconds to answer these three questions. You ready? Yes, sir. Turk, you ready? Yes, do it. Let's make it happen. Question number one, give the people a little about your upbringing. Well, very traditional home, mother and father. Nothing was really unique. Um about my upbringing, I say regular household. Um, went to residential school for high school, so that probably was a little bit of a uh, twist there from what I guess a lot of children experience, but it was a regular, regular upbringing. And where are you from, Dr. Umar? Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Cool. Philly, stand up. What's the second thread count, E.T.? Second thread count. There is a lot of allegations out there, Dr. Umar, about you actually being a doctor. So are you a real doctor? Well, um... My doctorate is from the Philadelphia College of uh, Osteopathic Medicine, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Anyone could call the registrar office to validate that or verify that, rather. As you know, I have haters, you know, distractors. Anyone in my position will have that. Anything that they do that they think they can get leverage to try to stop the people from supporting me, they're going to do that. But that right there can be easily verified with a telephone call. Come on, somebody. Talk to them, Dr. Umar. <laughs> so this, thread thre this third thread count. When I first found out Dr. Umar was coming to our show, I was extremely excited. I couldn't, like, my stomach was hurting, like, so bad that I wanted to call and tell people, even before it was confirmed. And when I was telling people, I was like, hey, guess what? Dr. Umar is coming to our show. And people were like, who? So my question is, why don't our people know who Dr. Umar is? Or not enough of our people, let me say that. Yeah, correct. Um, I just think because a lot of the mainstream media outlets, you know, the Oprahs and the Tavises and that type of thing, you know, they're part of the gatekeeper community whose job is to basically keep African Americans where they are. So bringing someone like me on that platform, you know, would be a threat, you know, to the American social order. So because I haven't had the benefit of being exposed to those types of outlets because my message does not fall in line with the status quo, you know, I don't get those types of, uh, those types of opportunities. But I would say that every day more and more people are learning about me, what I stand for, my work, and my efforts to build the school. So slow but 
study. Cool, that's a great answer, Dr. Umar. We definitely got to get you in some of the major outlets. So now that the thread count is over, we usually have some topics, but today we're doing a special interview. So we have a few questions for Dr. Umar. Um, you mentioned you were from Philly, uh, pretty rough area, middle class. What would you say you were ranked in? Well, I'm from the hood, you know. I'm from the ghetto. We grew up poor. We grew up poor in North Central Philadelphia, uh, right across the street from Meek Mills is where um, we pretty much grew up at. A couple blocks from Bill Cosby. You know, I'm from I'm from the ghetto. I'm from the hood. Got it. So, so other than all of your uh, activism and the great work you're doing in the community, what other things did Dr. Umar grow up doing? You mentioned Meek Mill. Did you ride the dirt bikes? Were you into comedy like Bill Cosby? What, what other things were you into? Nah, none of that. None of that. I didn't know Meek personally. My brother said he was a real good friend. One of my younger brothers used to come across the street, play video games or whatnot. But he and I don't have a personal relationship with him and my younger brother. But as far as me, I was a reader. You know, I was what you would call the nerdy type. You know, I was the one who stayed after school just because I was the one who did his homework only because it wasn't perfect. I was in the spelling bees and all that type of thing, you know. So my father, he was pretty firm. You know, so for me, it was just a very strict type of an upbringing for the most part, but I love learning, you know, so I was the type of guy who would go to the Temple University Library, me and my best friend Mark at the time, and we would do homework and read books until they put us out. Like, our fun was literally literature, and I think we've lost that in the African-American tradition now with the advent of the cell phone, the tablet, mobile technology. I think that literature and the acquisition of literary skills amongst our children has taken a devastating hit with the advent of technology. Most definitely. Now, with that technology, and, and I know you said you you walked to Temple University, like, in your headphones, did you listen to music on the way there? Because I'm getting to a question about hip-hop, and I want to know your take on, the, and I understand you said the literature is lost, but I want to know how you feel about the impact of the hip-hop on our children, the same way with the tablets and the, the easy access to the music. How do you feel the hip-hop is affecting our youth? Well, mainstream gangster rap, uh, which is the predominant expression of hip-hop today, which is totally corporate-controlled, I don't see any benefit out of that. That's almost like a modern-day minstrel show. It is simply the advertising medium for mass incarceration. Nearly every rap song that you listen to has four themes that basically uh, uh, emanate from it, and that is um, sexual exploitation of women, drug dealing, going to jail, and killing other black men sexual exploitation of women, drug dealing, going to jail, and killing other black men. So that is not a message that our children need to be listening to. But I know of very few black parents who control the music that their children listen to, which is astonishing given the quality of filth that is portrayed through mainstream gangster rap. Got it. So with that gangster rap, you have a lot of, like you stated, drug dealing, a lot of incarceration and those things. So I, I had a, a friend of mine growing up that um, was from the neighborhood, Grew up in the neighborhood. Everybody knew him. And he caught a little uh, jail time. Caught a charge. And he came back home, and we kind of shunned him away, which is the natural African-American hood mentality. Like, hold on, you must have snitched on somebody. Why did you get out so fast kind of thing? And we grew up with this guy. So I hear you often talk about repatriation. Am I saying that right, E.T.? Repatriation. Yeah. Repatriation. So in, in the black community... We can't accept our own just coming back from jail. So when you speak of re one more time, E.T. Repatriation. Dr. Umar, I, I talk well, but I didn't go to college, so some of your words be getting me. But it's all good. 
So when you talk about us going back to Africa, how do you think that actually looks, and why do you think it'll work? Well, number one, uh, the biggest current migration of Africans in the West is back to Africa. It doesn't get a lot of attention from the media, but I personally know dozens of African-American brothers and sisters who have moved back home. I know dozens from the Caribbean as well. So going back to Africa is not a philosophical dream. It's a practical action that can be taken. And I know a lot of brothers and sisters who have been taking it. The problem is that most of us hate our Africanity. We absolutely hate it. In fact, even when you look within the conscious community, those of us who actually still identify as African are, represent a very small number. Most of our brothers and sisters have gravitated to other ideologies because they actually um, they enable that anti-African feeling that a lot of us have because we were taught by white folks conditioned so, so thoroughly that there's nothing proud about being an African. So ironically, with all the black consciousness running around, most of that consciousness has an anti-African energy towards it. You know, but one of the things I'm working on is the repatriation task force. So the end of 2017, early 2018, we'll be taking about 50 to 75 brothers and sisters to Africa. We'll be going to live and stay for approximately 90 days and research that state, uh, research that city, research that area. And if we feel that we can get something done there, we plan to pull our money together, purchase a large plot of land on which we will build one of the first repatriation communities for brothers and sisters who are ready to quit America. It's very real, it's very practical. People do it every day, but the biggest boundary is the psychological connection. Slavery destroyed our psychological connection yes. to Africa, and the self-hate perpetuates that disconnection. Right. So, Dr. Umar, um, for those of us who follow you, you know, we know a little bit about the work that you're doing as far as your school. Um, you were a principal as well as a teacher, but tell us what you're trying to do with your school. Uh, well, with the school, we want to build a residential academy that trains and prepares black boys in the art of wielding power, acquiring power. We have to teach our children that power is absolutely essential if African people are going to reverse themselves. Not integration, not looking to be accepted, not building good relationships with your oppressor. Okay, the issue is about getting power, political, economic, cultural, and otherwise. And so the FDMG Academy will be a power-building institution. We're going to train them in the sciences of uh, economic science, military science, political science, agricultural science, industrial science, spiritual science, dietary, and nutritional science. It will be a school that trains leaders of nations, that trains leaders of independent communities. We want to change the trajectory from simply preparing black kids to make a living, which simply means work for white people. We want to change that narrative into one where we empower children to dominate their communities, to dominate the global, political, and economic reality. And I'm, I'm glad you said that, Dr. Umar. <laughs> one of my questions was, and, and I understand that we're going to attack the youth with the uh, Fred, Frederick Douglass School, but what about our listeners, right now we probably have 90% of our listeners are sitting in a cubicle, uh, working at a corporation, um, maybe listening in the gym, but for the most part they're all sitting at a desk in corporate America. So the, the words uh, unapologetically black has become real popular lately. What would you say to those people who are currently in a corporate America situation can or maybe cannot get out 
but to remain, you know, unapologetically black and still promote themselves in those corporate situations? Well, to clarify, firstly, the unapologetically African movement, I started it. It was actually started by me. Come on, somebody. The unapologetically African was corrupted into unapologetically black, once again, because we're not comfortable being African and we want nothing to do with it. So we would rather be an adjective instead of a noun. But it was the unapologetically African movement. It was never unapologetically black, but self-hating Africans corrupted it to blackness because they hate the Africanness. But for those of them who are in corporate America, the job is to get free of it. It's not that you have to work the white folk. We all do at some point in our life. you got to get the experience. You have to build the revenue base. But you should be plotting your freedom. You know, just like in slavery. You might be a slave today, but you're plotting your freedom. You're earning your money so you can pay for your freedom. That has not changed. Today, metaphorically, that is still the reality for African people. Instead of physical slaves, we're now economic slaves. And we should be plotting our freedom away from massive supervision and massive need to beat our families. Start working on that business plan. Where's that marketing plan? Where's that financial plan? Where's that operating plan? Have you done a market analysis of what it is you're going to be going into business for? America only works for those who are interested in exploiting the business opportunities here. This is not a country for people who just want to work. This country will walk all over you if you just want to be an economic slave. This country is made for those who want to be wielders of economic power. Now, we're going to have a much more difficult time doing that because we don't have black banks and black credit unions. We'd rather build churches than build economic opportunity. So it's going to be tougher for us, but we still have to do it because no one is going to resuscitate African life like African people. This is up to us to do ourselves. Dr. Dr. Umar, you're talking that real. You're You're not letting up for us, and I appreciate it. I was listening to one of your interviews, and you were speaking on the things that can be discriminated as far as public schools. What are those things and why? Say that one more time. I was listening to one of your interviews, and you were speaking about the things that can be discriminated on as far as public schools. We were listening to a conversation that you had about your school and the the charter schools, the public schools, and those different things. And uh, I think E.T. is trying to uh, have you expound on what things would limit you from doing all the things you want to do with your school as far as young black males, no, no, uh, no, can I say gay on the radio? Yeah, yeah. we're going to say gay. This is the no, uh, what's not, that's not the word you like to use, Dr. Umar. What's the word? Well, um, I would say this, that having an independent school, I basically have the ability to operate the school as much as I would like to, as I desire to. There's very little constraint and control with regard to how one operates an independent school because you're not taking public funds. And you still have to obey civil rights law. You can't discriminate on the basis of color and things like that. But beyond that, academically and instructionally and pedagogically and educationally, you can pretty much operate the school the way in which you want to. So that's the benefit of independent school. Obviously, the natural takeaway is that you have to finance it yourself. So with the independent school... What credentials, like, uh, are you, how would you be accredited? Well, you get accredited once you're given um, your license to operate as an independent school. So basically the state has to come down, they have to inspect the curriculum, inspect the school, and then they approve you. And once you're approved, you're accredited to operate. As far as the certifications, teachers have to be certified in independent school too. Every state differs. But the independent school certification is not as stringent as the public school certification in most states. Independent school teachers do not have to take or pass the Praxis examination, which gets a lot of black
good thing about that is if I find somebody who's an excellent teacher, they can still be hired under a less rigorous um, employment criteria than what is used in public schools. So that benefits us because the reason why we got so many white teachers, even in black charter schools, is because black good black teachers don't have the uh, teacher license because they cannot pass that um, practice examination, which in my opinion um, is, a, is, is rigged to guarantee that black children, excuse me, black teachers do not pass it. In fact, I'm going to go a little further and say that they're actually reporting failure on behalf of black teachers when they actually pass it. And this is not just conjecture. I actually met a brother down in um, the U.S. Virgin Islands a couple of years ago who was told he failed the New York City uh, teacher's examination and did his research later and only to find out that they misscored his protocol. They misscored his protocol. So without question, there are things being done to keep, to shrink, to control the population of black teachers who are able to teach our children in the schools. To expand on that question that I asked you, you, you had mentioned that there are, there are all white schools out there and there are all gender-based schools out there. Also, there may be all gay schools out there, correct? Apparently, there's one opening in Atlanta. Well, so. you, can, you can discriminate against gender. And right. You can discriminate against sexual orientation. You right. can even discriminate against uh, religion. But it's kind of tough to discriminate uh, based on race. It's hard. It'll be difficult for me. It may not be difficult for white folks, but it'll right. be difficult for me to operate. To say the school will be all black. In fact, when I went to the orientation for New Independent Schools in Pennsylvania, they specifically told me that you cannot call it a black school. Right, because we have HBCUs, but everybody's open to go to an HBCU. Exactly. But exactly. we don't have a, a an all-black an all school. So, right. So you, um, your title, um, well, I, I don't know if we call it a moniker or a title, but you call yourself the Prince of Pan-Africanism. Explain that title and, and, and what really, and I'm going to give you the T.I. question, what really gives you the, the gall or the balls to call yourself the Prince? Okay, well, first of all, I'm called that by the community, so it's okay. not something that I just chose myself. It's something that the people put on me as well. Yes, sir. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's no balls needed. You know, the bottom line is no one is pushing the revolutionary Pan-African nationalist program as I do. I'm the most requested black scholar on the face of the earth. I'm probably the first scholar in recent American history who simultaneously has been the most supported and most requested on the college campus in the hood and simultaneously internationally all at the same time. And this has been done without any major mainstream media attention. You know, so if you, you know, were to do a survey or some research on it across the planet for that matter, and I'll be going to China for the first time, the African brothers and sisters invited me to speak in China. I'm going to do a tour of Bangkok, Shanghai, Hong Kong, and we're going to go around because there's a lot of Africans in China. So once I do China, I would have spoken on every continent. I do a regular tour in South Africa. I regularly speak in the Caribbean, Canada, Central South America, the UK. I mean, in terms of love, even outside of the Pan-African paradigm, I mean, just in terms of black consciousness and black leadership, you'd be hard-pressed to find a name that gets the type of love and attention that I do. The and Prince, I, asked, the, I asked that question just to get you to talk that talk because we needed to hear that. The Prince has spoken. I feel you. I feel you. But I, feel I, you. I do want to ask this. So if the people gave you the Prince, who would you consider the king? Right, that's a good question. The Honorable Marcus Messiah Garvey. That's, what, that's, that's the answer I, I thought. Right, it's a great question. So as far as Pan-Africanism, I, I did some research on that, and I want to ask, how affiliated or how um, in touch are you with the program at Syracuse? Uh, what program at Syracuse um, University? I spoke there last year for Black History Month. What program? 
most of the research I've done on Pan-Africanism kind of directs back to Syracuse, and they, they apparently they have a, a study of Pan-Africanism there. Okay, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, one thing about the universities, though, they will call a program Pan-Africanist if it includes the study of more than one continent. So if they're dealing with history and culture in North America as well as England or Africa, or as well as they, they will call it Pan-African, but they don't necessarily mean the ideology and philosophy right. of Pan-Africanism. So sometimes you got to delineate because they'll lump everything under Pan-Africanism. So um, I'm not aware of them having a program on pan I'm not aware of any university um, at this point having a program on the philosophy, um, the ideology, and the history of Pan-Africanism as an ideology. I know about African diaspora studies, Africana studies, but one, on Pan-Africanism as an ideology, I'm not aware of any university that has that. That was really a question of validity, because I just wanted to know if it was true. <laughs> right. Dr. Umar, you. can you, you know, for the listeners' sake, can you define Pan-Africanism? I would reduce, uh, for the sake of conversation, Pan-Africanism to four principles. Number one, all African people are members of the same human family. All African people are members of the same human family, whether we speak in English in Florida, whether we speak in Igbo in Nigeria, whether we speak in Kosa in South Africa, or Swahili in Kenya. One family, uh, regardless of our kin skin tone, regardless of our nationality, regardless of our religion, we one family. So that's number one. Number two, we identify on the level of that family before we identify with anything else. This is unique to Pan-African nationalism from the Garveyite perspective. Being African is more important than being Muslim, Christian, or anything else. So we put the Africanity first. That's critical for us. We're African first. African race first is the platform. And then the third piece would be that we believe that no African population can rise unless all African people rise. No community of blacks in the world can rise unless Africa rises. Marcus Garvey said, strong man is strong everywhere. So with that being said, if we, okay, if we want to improve the black American situation, you've got to improve the black African situation because the respect you get and don't get is largely a reflection of the respect that is accorded to your international homeland. So Chinese are respected everywhere because China's strong. Don't nobody want to mess with China. You know, East Indians are respected everywhere because East India is strong. Israel, Jews are respected because Israel's strong. You see, every people have a national platform that they stand on. They have a national, an international platform that they stand that they stand on. You know, they're citizens of a particular nation that will speak up and come to their defense. Everyone has that going for them, except African people. We weak because we have no country to come to our defense. Not one African country has ever done anything significant to benefit the cause of us here in America. And likewise, we have done nothing significant to benefit the cause of Africans in Africa. So we rise together or we don't rise at all. That is critical to Pan-Africanism. And then the last point I would say would be self-determination. We believe that what is to be done for African people must be done by African people. What is to be done right. for African people must be done by African people. We believe that. You know, so self-determination and self-reliance is how we roll. That's awesome. That's good stuff. So, Dr. Umar, um, my, my son was born um, last year, my, my first and only son. And some advice my brother gave me was, he said, don't, don't let these doctors try to put your son on ADHD. So my question to you is, is there a war that we're fighting with black children in ADHD? Without question, there's a war. Without question, 
um, this whole ADHD phenomenon is a assault, an all-out assault on the mind, biology, and consciousness of black boys. I mean, the over-medicalization of African boys is out of control. The Ritalin prescriptions, the Adderall, the Concerta, the Vyvanse, the Cycler, and not just the anti-ADHD meds, but also the psychotic meds that they get out. The Risperdals and the Depakote, some of which are not even designed to be used on children to legally be prescribed. So my message today, you know, here in Jacksonville and Detroit Friday and Atlanta Sunday, is we have to slow down on letting white folk do what they want to do with black children. You know, we look at two million black kids in special ed, you know, and parents are quick to say, you know, what they did to my child. Don't say what they did to your child. Say what y'all did to your child. There's no way you can evaluate a kid without parent permission. There's no way you can place a child in special education without parent permission. So it is very, very important that parents understand that they are the power. They decide what happens and does not happen to their children. We have to step up and stop letting the schools bully us because they are literally bullying our children out of existence. So Dr. Umar, um, in my group chat, with, with my fellas, we talk about everything from books to movies to everything. And one thing that we talk about is movies, like we recommend movies to each other. Um, my question to you is, what documentary, if you can pick one, would you recommend to the people like, this is a must-see? Because a big one in my, ch my group chat was that Netflix original, 13th, and also Hidden Colors was another really big one. So what would you, rec like, what would you recommend? I mean, when I look at myself, a lot of the documentaries I watch, a lot of it is on that period that existed between the end of slavery and the modern civil rights era, that 1865 to 1945. That's a period that we really don't study a lot of, and I think we really need to, because that's when a lot of unsung heroes really stood up and advocated not only Pan-Africanism, but the building of independent black communities. When I look at some of the uh, movies, documentaries that I watched, a lot of them is on heroes. You know, the Patrice Lumumba story, the Marcus Garvey story, the Kwame Nkrumah story. I'm real big, you know, and trying to master the history of our heroes and sheroes so I can actually tell it to the children. I also watch a lot, you know, as it relates to slavery. You know, that's a period mm -hmm. for me that's very critical. The fact that our ancestors were able to survive that type of situation. But I also like the docudramas too, especially for children. Because a lot of children aren't going to sit through documentaries, but they'll watch the docudramas. You know, so uh, like the Patrice Lumumba movie, you know, this new one that came out, Nate, Nate Parker, yeah. Birth of the Nation. That's mm -hmm. something that I think a lot of children will want to watch as well. So a mix of the documentary with the docudrama, you know, I think it will be good. But that reconstruction period, you know, that's something that we really need to study better. And I think the whole 19th century is something we need to study more. From 1800 to 1899, we accomplished more as a people internationally than we did any time since then and any time since the fall of the great African civilizations. The 19th century was our golden century. That's when we got Marcus Garvey, Elijah Muhammad, the Haitian Revolution, uh, the, the, the birth of political Pan-Africanism, Shaka Zulu, Queen Nzinga, I mean, uh, Ya Ashantiwa. Um, Queen Nzinga may have been a little earlier, though. But most of those, uh, Menelik II, uh, His Majesty, many of our great movements and periods and, and uh Wars, battles, uh, ideological foundations, institutions, historically black colleges come out in the 19th century. So I really think we need to study that 19th century African because they're the ones who got it right. And they got it right with half the information we have today. Dr. Umar, I'm going to tell you, 
speaking of documentaries, I feel like every young black boy has to watch Lion King. What's the name of that? Lion King. <laughs> oh, Lion King, the, the cartoon Lion the King. The Disney movie. That movie is definitely about a young black boy his family and the fact that it took place in Africa is a setup. But I, I told, I just told my, uh, my, my father-in-law that yesterday. I say every little black boy got to watch that movie to understand the power they have, with or without a father. No matter what situation you get into, that movie shows it in a in, in a in a light that a kid can understand. I feel you on that. I feel you on that. A lot of those animated movies do have a lot of subliminal messages, some positive and some not so positive. I didn't realize it until I watched it in 3D a few years ago when it came back out. But I was like, wait, this movie about a black boy. And it was hard to get to. Everybody need to watch this. <laughs> so uh, I was looking at the um, Hidden Colors with Tariq Nashi. Uh, what's your relationship with Tariq? Um, I got a positive relationship with everybody. I respect what everybody does. You know, I don't really discuss um, personal relationships because I don't think that's anything public needs to know. But respect. I respect him and I respect what he's done with the Hidden Colors piece. And I respect all the brothers and sisters pretty much throughout the conscious community who are trying to, you know, do something to change the mindset or the trajectory of our people. So I don't, I don't, I don't have an issue with anybody. I asked that question to, to kind of promote, when is the Dr. Umar documentary or movie coming out? Uh, the shock documentary, still working on that now. Uh, it's always a work in progress because I got to juggle that with the travel schedule plus with the professional work I do as a school psychologist. So um, it's tough, but we're getting there. Slow but surely we're getting there. Now, you're here in Jacksonville to speak on, uh, from the title, it looks like there's going to be a lot of trumping going on, a yes, lot sir. of political talk, and it looks like it looks like you got a, a different spin on it to show how this election and the upcoming president-elect could actually affect black people in a positive manner. Uh, expound on that for us. Right. Um, and it, it, it's not that Trump will be of any positive benefit to African people. But it's the fact that the illusion of inclusion that Barack Obama, uh, mm-hmm. who, uh, uh, what you want to say, rock black people to sleep with, that's now over now. So now when the police mm-hmm. kill a black man, it's clearly white violence, you understand? Uh, black poverty is clearly due to racism. Barack Obama did a lot to cover up the element of race in American political, economic, and social life. You know, through, through the disguise of Obamaism, America was able to do a lot of harm to black people especially since they knew he would not say anything about what was being done to us. So now that he's gone, we can deal with America as America has always been, an unapologetic white racist society. The benefit is that we can see through clear eyes now, but we're still going to have to organize and stand up. That's the bottom line. And unfortunately, slavery made us very comfortable uh, not exerting any type of control over our reality. Now, you caught a lot of bad feedback on uh, a lot of social media platforms in one of the videos that went viral where you talked about Obama and how you feel like he hasn't done anything directly for blacks. He did, you know, he, he gave gays some power. He gave some whites some power. He gave women some power. Latinos. But he never did anything directly to say here, African people or black people. He can't. He has no check marks for us on his bio at this point. Um, let's speak on that for me a little bit. Well, it's just that. Um, it's not a feeling, it's a fact. You know, whenever I hear brothers and sisters who are emotionally defensive of Barack Obama, I like to go to the data. Show me one thing that he did, program or law, program or law, that was exclusively for black folks. I can show you three laws that were exclusively for gays. I can show you laws that were exclusively 
but for black people. Not one thing that he do is for black folks. Not a single thing. And people say, well, he did some stuff. Please name me one law. It's not hard. Find me one law or one program that was just for us. Can't nobody find it because he never did anything for us. Man, I got in a full-blown argument with my mom and stepfather to prove to argue that same point. And this was before you said it. And and they like almost put me out that night. Like it's all love, it's my mama. But they were we were in a very heated argument and nobody believed me. I'm like, this probably was two or three years ago. And I'm like, he hasn't done anything for us. I know y'all love him. He the first black president and all that. He cool as the other side of the pillow. But what has he done for your people? And they defended him, of course, because that's what we do. The emotionalism, that whole white, that whole... We, we have the Christ complex very bad. We have it very, very bad. And we got to also do a, psychonaut, a psychological analysis on why black people love Obama so much, but he didn't do anything for them. It's because he was accepted by white folks. That's it. And there is no other explanation. White people accepted him. And because most of us desire to also be accepted by white folks, that they speak out 
to some of the, the injustices and different things going on in the African-American community? I think they should speak out, but they won't. Because the, black athletes are the, more but products. Do you think they are, like, is it necessary? Are they, do they have to? Are they obligated? They should. Everyone should. Not just the athletes, but the entertainers. Not just the entertainers, but the black middle class. Not just the black middle class, but the black church. Not just the black church, but the black underclass. Despite the fact that the athletes and entertainers earn more money than the rest of us, you know, to me, doesn't necessarily mean they have to do more than the rest of us. I think all of us can play an equal role in this in this situation. Uh, we got to keep in mind, you know, that despite the earnings of these athletes and entertainers, we make more than them collectively as a people, okay? We spend $600 million on McDonald's every year. Very few athletes are worth $600 million. Right. We spend $2 billion on Air Jordans every year. No athlete is worth $2 billion. We, we uh, spend $9 billion on permanent reach. No athlete is worth $9 billion. So despite their individual um, financial strength, we as a people are much stronger than any athlete or entertainer that we have if we would just unify our dollar and stop trying to pass the buck. We are responsible more than them. Their children are already set. It's ours that are struggling. So I know you got a lot to do today and you're a busy man. But we have one final um, portion of our show that we call Threading the Needle. And in that segment of the show, we give our guests a phrase or a word. And you have to respond with one word. Uh, you okay with that? Yes. We're going to throw a couple topics at you and just one word answers, please. Go ahead, uh, uh, E.T. Systematic racism. The order of the day. Dr. Umar, you got to participate. We need <laughs> one word. <laughs> I know it's hard because you're a man of many words, but we got to get one word, all right? Uh-huh. <laughs> Go ahead, E.T. So, systematic racism. Power. Frederick Douglass. Legend. EBT. Give me that again. EBT. BB, what, what does that stand for? EBT. Food stamps. <laughs> oh, okay. EBT. Slavery. Bob Marley. Icon. Slavery. Hell. Mm. Dr. Umar, it was a pleasure having you on today. Please get the people uh, your next few dates so they can try to catch you on the road. As well as how to get in contact with you, Dr. Umar. Yes, sir. They can reach me on the website, drumarjohnson.com, D-R-U-M-A-R-Johnson.com. Uh, email drumarjohnson at yahoo.com. Twitter and Instagram at drumarjohnson. Facebook, drumarjohnson.com. I'm here in Jacksonville today speaking at 6 o'clock, Regency Square Mall. I will be in Detroit Friday, December 30th, 6 o'clock. I will also be in Atlanta, Georgia, New Year's Day for the final day of Kwanzaa at the Shrine of the Black Madonna, Los Angeles, California. The first Saturday of the new year, that's Saturday, January the 7th, in Durham, North Carolina. Um, the second, uh, no, what is that, the third Tuesday of the new year, January the 17th. Uh, they can get tickets at princeofpanafricanism.eventbrite.com. Also, I have a free black parent teleconference every Tuesday. Any question about your child, education and mental health, free advice, free consultation with Dr. Umar Johnson. And the number for that is evading me right now, but they can email me for that number, drumarjohnson at yahoo.com. Dr. Umar, one more thing. You said that Marcus Garvey is the king 
You're the prince. Who's the heir? Oh, I think I got some work to do. All black boys are the heir. That's why we need the Frederick Douglass, Marcus Garvey Academy. I like All it. Black boys I like it. I like it. Dr. Uma, we'll see you tonight at the event, man. We definitely appreciate you. Will do. Thank you, fellas. Thank uh, you.